0: Hey, Keely! Hey, Chris. Welcome to Heard It on the Sidelines. Heard It. Hurt It on the sideline with Shotgun Spratling.
1: Spratling. That is correct. We are back. We've got another episode of the Hurt It on the Sidelines podcast for you guys, and this is going to be a really cool one today, a Hall of Fame edition, if you will. I'm your host, Shotgun Spratling. First off, saying thank you to Keely and Chris for the intro, and thank you to everyone for joining us. For anyone listening in for the first time, the Hurt It on the Sidelines podcast is a part of the Peristyle podcast family. It's the podcast where we discuss what's going on at USC, but also try to pull back the curtain to give you an insider's perspective from the people around the USC athletic programs. April 8th is a special date to me for reasons I'll keep to myself, but on this special date, we're going to do something a little different because, well, it's my podcast and i do what I want. Today's the 47th anniversary of Henry Louis Aaron Hammerin. Hank Aaron breaking one of the all-time career records, hitting home run number 715 to pass Babe Ruth on the career home run list.
2: One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone.
1: That was the call from Vin Scully. Growing up a Braves fan, that record has always meant a lot to me. I've always taken pride in Hank Aaron's accomplishment that day and seeing his name, number, and story all over first Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and later Turner Field. I remember seeing the date April 8, 1974 and the number 715 at my first ball game as a little boy. It was on a logo plastered on the outfield wall in Fulton County Stadium at the spot where the ball cleared the fence. That wall logo still stands in a parking lot where the stadium used to be, even though the Braves have now twice moved stadiums since.
2: What a marvelous moment for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world.
1: Again, from Vince Scully. Aaron was an icon and a hero in Atlanta from my childhood days, but it wasn't until later in life, fascinated by baseball history and the Negro Leagues, that I began to understand what Hank Aaron had to endure on his path to 715, and the full impact he had on the city of Atlanta, the state of Georgia, and the nation as a whole.
2: A black man is getting a standing ovation in the Deep South for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother.
1: We'll get into this with one of our guests, but Henry Aaron was initially opposed to the Braves moving from Milwaukee to Atlanta. The Alabama native said, I've lived in the South, and I don't want to live there again. And without Aaron, there may not have been a team to move. Yet, he would eventually become Atlanta's greatest icon, helping to integrate the South as the Braves became the first pro sports team in the Deep South. Following Henry Aaron's death earlier this year, just shy of his 87th birthday, I've been wanting to put together a special USC Hank Aaron Connected show, and there feels like no better date than April 8th to talk about the Hall of Fame outfielder, who is the all-time RBI and total bases leader, who was named to 21 consecutive All-Star Games, who was top 20 in MVP balloting 19 years in a row, a symbol of consistency. He had eight seasons with 40 home runs, another seven with 30 or more. He was an MVP, a Gold Glove winner. Over his career in different seasons, he led the league in hits, runs, doubles, RBIs, batting average, slugging, total bases, and obviously he led the league in home runs in multiple seasons. So I've got two special USC guests that knew Henry Aaron at different stages in his career, in his life. Former USC pitcher and later USC pitching coach Tom House has a special place in the history of home run number 715. He was in Atlanta-Fulton County Stadium that night, that spring night, April 8, 1974, when the Braves played the Dodgers. House was relief pitcher with the Braves, and he's actually the person who caught the home run that Hank Aaron hit off Al Downing. House joins us to talk about that moment, how he was in prime position to catch the home run in the Braves' bullpen, and what it was like playing alongside Henry Aaron. The boss man Ryan Abraham joins me as we couldn't have the illustrious Tom House, a pitching and throwing motion guru, on the show and not pick his brain about a number of other topics including USC baseball, throwing bullpens beside Tom Seaver, how he helped another former Trojan Hall of Famer get on track in the big leagues with the help of yet another all-time MLB pitching great House also talks about the work his organization 3DQB has done this offseason with USC quarterback Keaton Slovis. You knew there was going to be a tie to USC football. And the potential of Slovis getting over his sophomore funk. We talked to Tom about what it's like working with pros of the ilk of Tom Brady and Drew Brees down to preteens. He works with everyone. And about a new initiative he's helping with, an app called Mustard, that could potentially help democratize personalized pitching QB training. Our second special guest is a part of the USC football program. I told you there'd be a tie in there. But also has a Hank Aaron connection. We'll talk with USC assistant athletic director and director of player development, Gavin Morris. You know Gavin as the guy that helps the Trojans land all the big fish recruits behind the scenes. He's everyone's favorite and someone every recruit considers their guy. Yeah, that's my guy, Gav. While we'd love to get Gavin on to talk about some of the nuances of recruiting and his path to where he is now, we've only got so much time for this episode, so we're going to try to stick on topic. We'll be talking to Gav about his connection with Henry Aaron, having worked with the Atlanta Braves while in school at Morehouse College in Atlanta, and how a disastrous initial encounter with Aaron turned into what Gavin calls the most inspirational 30 minutes of his life. You definitely got to listen to this story. Gavin also gives some insights into what Aaron and his record meant to the city of Atlanta and to the African American community as a whole. So let's jump into it with our first special guest on today with a Hank Aaron and USC connection, Tom House, who played at USC before moving on to a professional career with the Atlanta Braves, also the Boston Red Sox and Seattle Mariners later moved into coaching working as a pitching coach with the Rangers, Astros, Padres, and even in the Japanese Nippon League before returning to USC as a pitching coach from 2008 to 2011. He's been working with quarterbacks and pitchers and catchers uh, throughout his career. He's working with a couple of different organizations now, but we wanted to first talk about, you know, with, with the anniversary of Hank Aaron. Tom, you know, thanks for joining us. And, and first just what was it like playing with Hank Aaron? How was he as a teammate? Oh, well, uh, that's
3: Two or three good answers in a row right there. Playing with Henry was special. You know, realized that I was a low-end guy, like a 10th man on a 10-man pitching staff. <laughs> but being in the being in the clubhouse with Henry on a regular basis for seven or eight years, the only way I can describe it is he was like a normal guy, quietly competent, but a superstar with everything he did. Uh, he'd play, you know, he'd play hearts, he'd play cards. With guys like myself, bullpen guys, he was a guy you could have a beer with after the game. You never really knew he was around until the you know, the game itself got tight, and there's you know, there was Hank Aaron hitting a home run, throwing somebody out or stealing a base. So if I had to describe hanging out with him, he was the most quietly competent superstar that I've seen in my tenure as a professional player or a coach. And that's 50 years. So he was pretty special.
1: How do you kind of use what you learn from watching and being around him, even still today, maybe?
3: Well, I got to know him a little bit better than most because he had trouble with left handed pitchers that threw slow curveballs, change up screwballs. But I got a chance to throw a lot of batting practice to him on Diamond Six in West Palm Beach couple buckets two times a week, and then tune up during the season. So um, I also tried to sit next to him in the dugout and listen to how he talked about what he was going to do against various pitchers. So it was an education hanging around with him. It was fun throwing batting practice to him. And then actually being involved in catching number 715, that's well, the good news is that's the highlight of my major league career. That's also, <laughs> the, bad, that's, and that's also the bad news. That's the highlight of my major league career.
4: It's the anniversary of, uh, of that catch. Is that something that was common? Like it would, uh, in the bullpen, would you be catching home runs? Or was that one just one you were looking for? Uh, because of it, it was a special one.
3: Well, it was a special one. We actually, leading into it, you know, he'd been chasing – the record all during the 1973 season and being two home runs away from breaking it, going into the 74 season, we had to determine come up with a plan not to have it. You know, if he, if he did hit it into the bullpen, what we did as a group was we divided territory that was behind the left field fence uh, into how many bullpen guys were out there. So my 10, 10 yards was basically in left center. And everybody agreed to respect if the ball was hit in, in your territory. It wasn't going to be a pig pile or diving or, you know, jumping for the ball. So as it turned out, if, if I would have stood still, it would have bounced right off my forehead. So it was no great catcher. In the day. Just, you know, luck of the draw, blind squirrel finding an acorn it was hit to me.
1: I don't know. Hank was good enough. Maybe he aimed it for you on that one. You know, his eyes probably lit up with that with the fat pitch coming in. Uh, what kind of happened after you know the catch? You know, you were an actor participant in this historic play. You catch the ball. What then happens after that moment?
3: Well, uh, I'd like to say I remember everything that happened. I do remember catching the ball. I do remember seeing Bill Buckner, who was left fielder with the Dodgers at that time, climbing to the top of the fence. And I do remember a fishnet coming from the sands above me, swishing down right behind me. Uh, I guess one of the Georgia Tech guys had put an extension on a fishnet and were trying to get it. And then the next real memory I had was arriving at home plate and kind of breaking through the crowd and reaching through. He was hugging his mom. The two of them were there with tears in their eyes. And I can remember sticking the ball in front of his face and saying, uh, here it he is, hammer. And he said, thanks kid. And I kind of got pushed out of the way. So that's, that's what I remember about it. You know, it was, it was exciting, but in retrospect, it was, it, it just, you know, it, it happened. There was so much excitement in the fans, probably not ingrained fully in my conscious mind, only my subconscious.
1: During that mm-hmm. whole ordeal, you know his mom comes out and, and hugs him, and she later says that she was hugging him to protect him and you know and that she was going to go with him if if there was a sniper or something. There were so many death threats and stuff that he received and some of that stuff came out, you know, afterwards, did did everyone in the locker room really understand what he was going through at that time with the death threats he was receiving, the pressure that was placed on him, especially with the off-season, you know, being one home run shy of tying it, going through that off-season, did did you guys kind of understand what was going on at at the time in, in in history?
3: Yeah, we knew something was going on because he had a full-time bodyguard, Cal Calvin and in toward the end of the 73 season uh henry would uh he would not ride the bus with us he'd take a different way to get from airport to hotel uh he had you know a room under a different name Uh, and we kind of heard stuff but i went through the minor leagues with dusty baker and ralph gar and henry is was kind of full-time buddies with them they all piled around together So I was aware of some of the weird stuff that was going on, but probably not
1: to the level that Henry was
3: experiencing on a day-to-day basis.
1: Where does Hank Aaron stand in your ranking of all-time greats?
3: In my generation, he was right up there. I I think he had the, the same or better statistics as Roberto Clemente and... I, I'm guessing. I'm going to blank the outfielder uh, with the San Francisco Willie Mays. He, he fit right in the slot, probably between those two guys for me. And the the probably the reason he didn't get as much PR was that he played in Milwaukee and Atlanta, and he wasn't he wasn't flashy. He, mm-hmm. You know, he was just like I say. you you never really knew how fast he was until you saw him running next to somebody that was fast. And he never really hit towering home runs. He just basically, if the fence was 318, he did it 324. You know, they they shifted on him. He hit the ball through the shift, and if he had to, he shoot it to right field. If a base needed to be stolen to get into scoring position in a nothing-nothing or a one-run game, he would figure out a way to do it. But he was never real flashy. He would communicate great in the clubhouse, but he was kind of his platform skills were more towards shy than effervescent if that makes any sense
4: Tom you were you started your career your professional career with uh, Atlanta. I know when you came out of USC part of your signing bonus was they were going to pay for your education. Were you going to school or did you wait till afterwards? When did you end up you know, going through uh, and getting your master's and your PhD? And I know, and, and I, I believe that was part of your signing bonus that you you signed with Atlanta.
3: Yeah. Well, you guys have done your homework. I'm impressed. The, <laughs> you know, the head coach at that time was Rod Dado. Not only was he, you know, the, the coach of the century in collegiate baseball, but he was a firm believer in education. One of the reasons I ended up going to USC is that he told my parents point blank in the recruiting that he, in our living room, he said, I can't guarantee you that he'll make a living playing baseball, but I can guarantee you he'll get a degree from USC. And then I'll always, if he stays in Southern California, he'll always have a job. So one of the things that he promised my mom was he would make sure that I would get a degree. And then when I did sign, he said, Tom, you're you're not going to get a lot of money, not going to get a big bonus, but if you ask the Braves for your education, it comes from a different part of the budget, and they'll give you your education for whatever you ask for. So I did. And I, like, as 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 Rod promised, I had to get actually two degrees from SC, and then a, another master's and my PhD beyond that. And I... I believe, uh, that I'm the, the only athlete that, that played for Rob that ended up getting multi, multi, you know, different degrees and a PhD on top of it, at least that I'm aware of. So you know, I was very thankful. He saw, he saw a way to help everybody that he coached be better for the experience.
4: Was there some kind of time limit on that? Or did, I mean because it probably took you a while to get your PhD right? Was Atlanta was still paying for it like decades later? Is that the, was that the case? Yeah. Yep. It carried
3: all the way. I think I, I got my PhD finally in nineteen eighty-four. So do the math. I was however many years that was. I just did it a semester at a time. And in those days you had to do by correspondence tutorials. They didn't have you couldn't do it online like they do today. So it, it turned out it was it was kind of a, a long haul going through it. But in retrospect, it was worth every bit of it.
1: The Braves didn't know they were getting a Bobby Bonilla's type of contract there <laughs> when, when they signed yeah. into that, that education <laughs> <So> I, bonus.
3: <laughs> Obviously, they changed the rules to where you have to get your compl- education completed within eight years of your retirement. So... Yeah, I didn't have a big effect on baseball, but that's one thing that they probably had to change the rule for. <laughs>
1: Well, you, you have had a big effect as, as far as working with pitching mechanics and, and uh, being kind of cutting edge and kind of being the, the father of what was kind of seen a little bit as weird at the time and now has become more and more commonplace. You coached with the Texas Rangers, and you coached another great during your time there with, with uh, Nolan Ryan. When he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1999, he credited you for basically helping extend his career. First, just wh- what did it mean to you to be there and have him mention you in his induction speech?
3: Well, obviously hanging out with Nolan, being his coach, and I'd like to say a friend of his, it was pretty special to be recognized in his Hall of Fame speech. But what was what was really cool is it, it sounds like it was all well planned out. Um, that we knew exactly what we were doing and that motion analysis and the technology that we were dealing with was the reason for all of it happening it wasn't that way at all it was very organic I I actually had a motion analysis system for two years and we had captured hundreds of athletes and I didn't even know what I was looking at we it was learning on on the fly and I honestly feel I learned more from the superstars the you know the Nolan Ryans and the Randy Johnsons and the Tom Bradys and the Drew Breezes, I think I learned more from them than they learned from me. So like I said, it probably wasn't well scripted, but it turned out to, to be a very positive thing as far as identifying how human beings throw and swing.
1: That was kind of cutting edge at the time, and like you said, it was kind of a organic uh, trying to figure out how how it would work. but what has motivated you to continually seek new information? I mean, even today you're still working on, on new things. Why do you you know are you constantly evolving yourself?
3: again, uh, I like to tell people i've I've never really had a, a a real job in my life. I've always been involved with sports I've worked really hard, but it's always been a passion and a quest for trying to get better myself as well as help the athletes that we're dealing with. And I don't know if you're aware that that my time frame when I was up at USC, not only was I the pitching coach for four years, we had the Rod Data Research Mm -hmm. and Baseball Institute. And that's where a lot of the, the, the science that's out there right now with Weighted balls and velocity improvement, heavy and light baths, functional strength training, um, nutrition, sleep. We did a whole bunch of research in the 10 years that I was there from 2008 to uh, 2018. It was a pretty exciting time, not, not just because of the sports, but because of the research that was going on behind the scenes at the Rod Dale Research and Baseball Institute.
4: You mentioned Randy Johnson there. Uh, I believe Nolan Ryan kind of gave a recommendation. <laughs> like Randy was having some problems with his mechanics, and Nolan Ryan's like, "Hey, maybe you check out a uh, Tom House." And it was something as simple as like where he was landing his feet. I guess it was. I mean, what what was that like uh, working with Randy Johnson? And, and what did you have to kind of help him with?
3: Yeah, I had known Randy because you know, obviously, Randy pitched at USC, and we we were actually in Seattle. I was with the Rangers at the time. And Nolan and I would always go to the ballpark early, get our work done before the team got there. And it happened to be on, on one of the days we were, we had finished our, our workout and we're sitting in the first base dugout. Balls were sizzling by the dugout at about 180 miles an hour. And we looked down in the right field bullpen and that's where Randy was actually working with his pitching coach at the time and obviously having trouble throwing strikes. So as Randy finished up and was walking by our dugout on the way over to the third base dugout where their, their, their team dugout was, I said, Hey, Hey, Randy, how you doing? He said, I'm not doing well at all. I'm having trouble throwing strikes. And Nolan kind of popped up and said, Randy, I'll I'll, I'll tell you what, we're working out again tomorrow. Uh, Why don't you come by about this time and we'll, we'll talk through some things and see if we can figure it out. So we made, made a small adjustment in the way Randy was, la- was landing in his delivery as, as he took his stride. and three weeks later, he punched out 18 of us and 18. <laughs> <Texas>. <laughs> so it probably ended up costing me my job, I'm not sure. So uh, they, they became friends. We actually the three of us actually did a video in Alvin, Texas. Called fastball, and it was it was known and Randy that were the, the the main part of the video, and it's it's a keeper. I still laugh at it today. It took it took it took Randy thirty takes to say, "Hi, my name is Randy Johnson. The information on this video helped me lead the the American League in strikeouts last year." It took him like thirty takes to get that done. And, to this, to this day, Nolan still laughs and makes fun of Randy. So, you know, you guys really did your homework. This is awesome. People, people don't realize what goes on behind the scenes and how much fun baseball can actually be. So thank you for asking these questions. I'm having a great
4: time. Oh, we are too. There's another USC legend you work with, Tom Seaver. Uh, well, that was, you guys were in college together. What was that relationship right. like? Well, it was one of,
3: of awe, if you want to know. I, I came out of Nogales High School in Mont uh, I put up some pretty good numbers and thought I was pretty cool. And my first bullpen at USC, Tom Seaver was throwing next to me. And I'm looking at this guy, and I'm going, holy crap. <laughs> and Rod, Rod, Rod comes up and puts his hand on my shoulder and said, tell me, House, what do you think of young Tom Seaver? And I said, Rod, if you need me to do that, you got the wrong left hand. <laughs> and, and Rod said, no, 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 I don't need you to throw like him. I need you to be the best Tommy House you can be. He's going to be after the bat. You're going to be before the bat. And you're both going to win 30 games for me. So it, it turned out, you know, Rod, you know, he predicted it perfectly. Obviously, Seaver went on to be a Hall of Famer. But I did win a few games for Rod, and I did play in the big leagues, so... It was an eye-opener.
1: Nice. We, we talked about you. You know, you played at USC, graduated a couple degrees from USC, playing with Tom Seaver, helping out with Randy Johnson, playing under Rod Dado. What's your favorite USC memory? We're talking about all-time legends in this conversation, talking about USC, but what's your favorite one?
3: My favorite story has to do with Billy Lee, mm-hmm. who is actually best man in my wedding. We're – In a game, we're watching what's going on. Billy and I, I I think we were in the bullpen that day, and Billy looks at me and says, "Housey, I got this pitching thing figured out." And I said, "Okay, talk to me." He said, "You have to be before the bat or after the bat. You just can't be during the bat." And that is that's one of the highlights of my SC career because he's exactly right. You just don't. And he, he, I think he pitched for 14 years with that philosophy. He just was real slow or real fast and just tried tried to avoid whatever bat speed was, was the hitter was presenting. And, you know, his thinking and making it simple probably helped me in my career as well.
4: You, uh, played for the Rod Day years and, you know, the, obviously legendary that you said the coach of the century, USC won more baseball national championships than anyone, but it's been a while, you know, 1998, you coached in the modern times. Is there, you know, the way the college baseball is set up now, can USC get back to the kind of glory days they were and, and, and try to win championships again?
3: I think they can. It's going to take what amounts to be a perfect storm. Because obviously not all things are created equal when it comes to the cost of an education and the, the recruiting rules and what you can and can't do with scholarships a lot of it is stacked against schools like USC, but it can be done. I, I think they're on the right track, figuring out that the current uh, head coach and his staff are very good recruiters, and the basically the legend of USC was, like you said, all those national championships. I don't think anybody's going to ever put those kind of numbers up again because there's just too much parity involved in collegiate sports. But there's no reason at all if, if they recruit well and develop like I know they can, they can be competitive.
1: Well, speaking of USC, during this offseason, <laughs> Keaton Slovis has been training with another organization you're part of, the 3DQB Training Group, with Adam Dado, John Beck, and Taylor Kelly. Not sure how involved you are in Keaton's training in particular, but he's a guy that said – He's never really studied with a QB or a mechanics coach previously, and he seemed to kind of lose his way. He lost his confidence last year, but he seems to have it back now after training with your guys. What kind of stuff do you do, you guys, do to help a quarterback feel assured in themselves?
3: Well, we keep it very simple. But when you come to rotational athletes, there's four things in their health and performance puzzle. There's biomechanics. There's functional strength. There's their mental-emotional approach to stress and anxiety. And then there's obviously nutrition and sleep for recovery. So when a, when a young quarterback or any quarterback comes to 3DQB, they're going to get all four of those things. And Adam, uh, obviously, is, is Rod's grandson. And I'm I'm trying to retire. I still, <laughs> I still have regular input with those guys. They're doing the, the day-to-day, grinded-out, uh, hands-on work on the field. But I'll go up on occasion. I still help with research, anything new, anything we can possibly do to help improve the offering that 3D QB, QB puts out there. Those three guys do a very good job. I think at this point in time, they have like 22. Of the number one number one starters in the NFL, a whole bunch of the backups, and probably 25 or 30 of the collegiate quarterbacks that are going to get into the NFL. So they they do a, a, a really good job. And again, the young men you're talking about, you know, when you when you get hurt, or he came out of nowhere his freshman year and put up some really good numbers and then got dinged up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And when when anybody gets hurt, it, it's hard to, to be as effective and efficient as it should be while you're compensating with, with an, an injury. And I think that dinged his confidence a little bit. But it's being put back together pretty well. My litmus test is that I'm not getting phone calls to come up and help with the mental-emotional side of things. So my guess is, combination of Adam, John, and Taylor working with him, is going to turn out really good for the Trojan football team.
4: Is that kind of a common thing you would see, a diagnosis, like a sophomore slump where, like you said, he comes out of nowhere his freshman year, there was an injury, there was a pandemic, there's a lot of weird stuff that happened, and it just didn't, you, you thought that great strides were going to be made during the sophomore year, the ball didn't look the same. Do you kind of see that often, and then sometimes you just kind of have to reset and get things back on track to maybe get back to the basics?
3: Perfect observation. You know, when you come in and you're not expected to do anything, it's a little easier than when expectations are put on you that are actually greater than what you did the year before. And then you combine that with, uh, again, the pandemic and the lack of predictability and the, you know, there was really no process they could hang their hat on. I think he did well just to survive. So as the new season progresses and everything starts getting back to normal, I think the results are going to be much better than they were a year ago.
1: We talked about Keaton struggling, and initially it seemed like it was mental with him. Having worked with numerous players throughout your years, how tough is it to get a guy, especially a young guy, out of a little bit of a mental funk?
3: Well, I think Yogi Berra said it best that 90% 90% of sports are 50% mental. <laughs> and to, to, to that end, we literally try to decide and determine through some of our testing what kind of a learner is the kid we're dealing with. You know, is he auditory? Is he kinesthetic? Does he, does he you know, have to feel it or see it? And then we try to tailor and reframe how we teach to how he learns, and with that in mind, combine that with the program that the athlete's actually dealing in, or performing in, and that combined effort makes for a better mental-emotional management set of skill that the kids can take between the lines and avoid the performance anxiety. Long sentence meaning just basically we work just as hard on how they think and how they feel as we actually do with their mechanics and their strength.
1: Well, we're hoping for a big season out of Keaton Slovis, and it sounds like he's on on the a positive track. One of the organizations that you're working with now is it, the, the new Mustard app that analyzes video that people take on their own and kind of delivers them a report card. So maybe even Keaton Slovis can use this. You guys haven't got the football portion out, but that's something that's in the works as well. The, the Mustard app itself kind of breaks down a player's motion and gives them a report card on how the, you know they're doing with their motion. How do you hope that this new app helps users?
3: Guys, you hit it dead on it. It's actually we're trying to democratize or make available to the moms and dads of a hundred million preteens and whatever is out there as teenage and twenty-year-olds the same exact thing that athletes get when they come to 3D QB or the National Pitching Association, but put it on a cell phone so, like I said, a mom can capture her 12-year-old throwing in the backyard, then that video through, through the app to Mustard and within two minutes get the same motion wow. analysis that elite athletes have been coming to either 3DQB or our lab down here in San Diego. And the efficacy of the information is the same. The evaluation process, the problem identification process, and the solutions are all exactly the same thing. But instead of having to pay you know, five, ten grand if you're a pro guy or whatever it might be. You can get it through the cell phone. And that will, will literally, what we're trying to do is make people understand the power of play and the value proposition that sport brings to these youngsters. It, 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 we've, the research shows if we can keep, sidebar real quick, right now at 80% of the kids, male and female, that are playing sports, will quit by age 14. Wow. If we can get them to if we can get them to participate in whatever their sport is through high school, then you basically have a fan for life who understands all the value proposition that competing in sports actually create for real life experiences. So it sounds a little altruistic but the feedback we're getting is off the charts good, and our uh, we're finishing up beta testing right now and should have a full offering with the first round, which is throwing, pitching mechanics, soon to be followed by throwing a football, swinging a bat, swinging a golf club, all the sports that youngsters participate in will hopefully within the next two years be able to be measured and quantified on a cell phone, which I think is totally cool.
4: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, if you need a beta, t- beta tester for the golf swing, let me know. I, I hack around, <laughs> so I'm in.
3: I'll tell you what, we can, we can tell you what you're doing wrong, I can't guarantee you'll be able
4: to fix it. <laughs> yeah, I've tried. It doesn't really work. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> What's well, up? A- well,
1: Tom, we don't want to take up too much of your time, but one more question for you. You know, you've worked with everyone from the stars, the Tom Brady's, the Drew Brees's. We talked about multiple Hall of Famers already that you've worked with, and, and you also still work with young kids and trying to build them up as well. And this mustard app could definitely lead to you know many more kid, young kids being able to continue playing. What brings you joy from coaching that makes you want to work with with so many different age groups?
3: Well. I, I'd like to tell you I had it figured out. I actually have more fun with a 12-and-under group than I do with the superstars. But I, I'm continually, I, you know, I'm sneaking up on 74. And every morning when I wake up, I can, I can hardly wait to start moving around because I know I'm going to get out and be able to interact with kids in sports. And the only difference between a 12-year-old and a 42-year-old, you know, Tom Brady are the lights and the paychecks. They're all big kids playing sports and doing what they love to do. And that's kind of what fuels me as I go through what I'm going through right now.
4: Dr. House, I know you're trying to get to retirement. I'm sorry we took we took a little bit more of your time. We're going to push it out a little bit <laughs> longer. But it was a really fun conversation. Uh, thank you so much for spending the time. This was, this was great. I had a
3: great time, guys. Look forward to doing this again soon.
1: What's up with you? What's you? Now bringing a special guest, Gavin Morris, my guy, Gav. And I say my guy because anytime you talk (laughs) to anyone about Gavin, they'll say, oh, that's my guy. So it's Gavin, my guy, Morris is basically, uh, is his name. He's a bi-coastal guy like me. He's from Los Angeles, but he went to school at Morehouse College in Atlanta. He worked for the Atlanta Braves in community relations, USC's assistant athletic director and director of player development, works a lot with recruiting and whatnot with USC and everyone's everyone's guy at USC. So want to bring Gavin on because of his connection with the Braves. He's worked, he worked with the Braves. He also got to meet Hank Aaron, worked underneath him. So want to bring him on for this special episode with the USC and Hank Aaron connection. Gavin, thanks for joining us. First off, man.
0: Oh, no shotgun. You know, we go way back and, uh, you know, I always, always teach you cause you got a Braves hat. You got a Braves hat on today.
1: I do not. I got a Georgetown hat on today, but oh, okay. you know, normally would have a, have a Braves hat. Yeah. on. Yeah.
0: Well, well Outside of myself, your hat collection is, is one of the best. As you see, <laughs> I got my, my champions hat, my Lakers and Dodgers uh, champion hat on.
1: As a I Braves know, know. and Rays fan, I definitely do not want to talk about that last MLB <laughs> championship at all.
0: <laughs> well, hey, we beat both of them. so uh, you I know. know the, the,
1: heart, the, the heartbreak is definitely there. But you got an opportunity to, to work for the Braves. You're in community relations. And got a chance to meet Hank Aaron and working with them. What was it like just, first off, getting an opportunity to meet him and kind of pick his brain a little bit?
0: Man, well, (laughs) I guess i got to give you a story on how I actually met Hank Aaron. So uh, just give you a story. Hank Aaron's daughter, Cicely Heidel, was my Spanish teacher. And so when I was in college – Everybody said, you got to take the Spanish teacher, uh, Miss Heidel, you know. So I was, you know, I was trying to cut. I was trying to cut corners. So I didn't register. And <laughs> I would just show up to the class. And she was like, well, you're not on my roll. So I don't know why you keep showing up here. I just kept showing up here. I said, I'll be on the roll by the end of the year. And so I would show up, you know, probably not every day, but most days, uh, the class. Finally, like the last day of, of ads and drops, my name showed up on the on the official roll. And, you know, she looked at me. She was just like, like, how how this happen? And so from from that standpoint, me and Miss Hydell just became best friends. And she's telling me stories about Hank Aaron. And, and uh, you know, I said she knew I always wanted to work in sports. And what happened was I ended up working for NASCAR. And then uh, I think it was my junior or junior, my first senior year. She was like, "Would you do you want to work for the Braves?" I said, I said, I said, "Hell yeah. I'll go work for the Braves." She was like, "Okay, well I'll call my dad's best friend and and make it happen." So, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And so Miss Hydell, I end up meeting Hank Aaron's secretary and then Hank Aaron's uh one of his best friends and I end up getting a job with Atlanta Braves. So, I started with the Braves. I'm working there for two months now. Anybody knows Hank Aaron? He's a figurehead at the Braves. He he was put, spending a lot of time building up Hank Aaron, Hank Aaron BMW. So his, his time was going to Hank Aaron BMW. So it was one day. It's probably like a month, month and a half, two months working for the Braves. Uh, I'm coming around the corner, and I run directly into Hank Aaron, and he had a cup of coffee, and the coffee spilt all on his white dress shirt.
1: Wow, Gavin. and so
0: and so my jaw just dropped. I'm like oh, excuse my language, but oh shit, it's Hank Aaron. And he's like, my shirt, (laughs) so (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So Hank's like, ah, okay, okay, okay. (laughs) And so he just walks off into his office and Hank Aaron had his secretary who was his gatekeeper and nobody walked past hers. Uh, You know, I I guess I'm spilling some beans, but uh, if Hank Aaron probably didn't sign your ball and you didn't see him sign it? She probably was the one that signed the ball. <laughs> you know, if you just got something in the mail, said it, was, hey, it was probably his secretary who was with him for like 20 years. And uh I'm like, I got to, you know, say thank you because it was a minority internship how I got the job. And it was a Hank Aaron minority internship. So I'm like, I have to say something to Hank. So I just bust into his office. His secretary is is... You know, you can't go in there Whatever that, I just bust in and mind you, I just spilled coffee on him. He's on the phone in his office and he's on the phone and he looks and he goes, whoever he's on the phone, with, he goes, hold on, I'm gonna have to call you back. Somebody just bombarded in my office. And he hangs up he goes, you again. I go, Mr. Aaron, you know, I, I apologize. I just want to introduce myself. I'm a friend of uh, uh, Cicely Heidel. You know, I I just wanted to you know say thank you. She was like, you know, my daughter. He was like, I don't believe you. And so he calls her. Now, remind you, this is uh, it's 2001. So you know, cell phones are just coming in. So he calls he calls Miss Heidel. and he goes, I got some gentleman in my office says he knows you. And he goes, What's your name? And I go, Gavin Moore. And I can just hear her screaming in the in the, in the, through the phone. Oh, daddy, that's my favorite, blah, blah, blah. And so he hangs up the phone with her. He goes, all right, you checked out. And we sat there for 20, 30 minutes just talking and just about life, about everything. Of course, I knew a lot about the day, you know, he broke the the record because his daughter, the family couldn't attend the game because they had bomb threats. And, you know, they had threats uh, against the family, as well as Hank Aaron's life. So they had, like, the FBI in front of the house. So they saw it on TV. So, you know, we just sat there and talked for 20, 30 minutes. And when I tell you, it was probably the most inspirational 20, 30 minutes of my life to sit there with the legend, uh, Hank Aaron, and just spend time and just know that I'm sitting here, I'm working for the Braves because of him. Like, you know, it gives me chills just, just saying the story because... You know, a lot of people don't know that story. I don't tell that story often, but yeah, that's that's how I first met Hank Aaron. I, I, you know, it, it started off bad, but it finished it finished <laughs> great. And you know what he meant to the city. And I later on became friends with the grandson of Bill Bartholomew, who's the one who sold who moved the Braves from Milwaukee to Atlanta and integrated the South professional. Because people don't know. Atlanta Braves were the first professional sports teams in the, uh, South of the, uh, uh, the, Mace, the uh, Dixie line. They were the first sports teams in the South. And one time, uh, my friend Brian, uh, William, D- Brian Duffy, his, his uh, brother committed suicide. So they had a, uh, a scholarship fund that they were doing for in his honor. And uh, I got a chance to sit with, Bill Bartholomew, all the heads of the Braves, his family. I was I was one of his guests, and I sat right next to Bill. And Bill told me the story on how they moved the Braves, Milwaukee Braves, to Atlanta. And you know, he was just telling me like we couldn't do it without Hank Aaron's approval. Like Hank Aaron was our superstar, and he was telling how he flew out, met with Joseph E. Lowry, Martin Luther King all the the black leaders in Atlanta at that time to, you know, get their approval on the movie because it was, it was going to, it wasn't just an easy move, like, you know, um, super son is moving to OKC. This was integrating the South and not everybody was, uh, not everybody was on board. And a uh, matter of fact, one of my boys, he's doing a, a documentary on the move and Hank Aaron and uh, his grandfather, um, uh, Bill Bartholomew. So that's my little background of Hank Aaron and, and, and how I met Hank. And, you know, of course, we, we met quite a few other times after that. But just in the city of Atlanta, how much he meant to the city. And people understand, like, Hank Aaron is the reason why you have NBA in the South, why you have the Atlanta Falcons, you have the Miami Dolphins, you have the Carolina Panthers, Atlanta Hawks. There were no professional teams in the South. And because Hank Aaron – because. You know, he was about to break the record and he gave permission to say, look, I'm willing to move to Atlanta from Milwaukee. That changed sports forever. And uh, a lot of people don't look at it like that because they think Hank Aaron is just breaking the the home run record. But they don't understand that he broke the color barrier and just sports barrier for the South.
1: Yeah, and definitely I mean Milwaukee was having some issues as well with race as right. well and that was one of the things that they had to sell him on what was going he's like if we're already having these issues in Milwaukee how bad is it going to be in Atlanta and so he had to go <laughs> oh, down exactly. there had to go down there and meet with them and you know when he gave his approval that was basically the the final notch in them being able to move to Atlanta which I'm thankful for as a Braves fan you know to have him there and That's you know, my second team. <laughs> okay, but you you don't root for him at all when the Dodgers are on there, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, but but obviously Hank Aaron it, he transcended the game and he was such a kind of a shy person and didn't look out for the accolades. He wasn't a gregarious person necessarily. And Tom House, who we talked to earlier in the podcast, talked a little bit about being his teammate and, and how he was a great teammate, but not the guy that you know is going to be out front of anything like that what did you take away from from the conversations you had with him just to, that maybe you've been able to use in your career going on from from the Braves to now being at USC and just kind of the the relationships that you build as you know as someone in the recruiting department for USC
0: yeah i mean the thing is he was a fighter you know what he told me was like at that time like you got to understand at that time when he did it he never sought it was going to be this big, <laughs> you know, like like it's easier for us to look back and go, wow, you, like Hank Aaron, you did that. But, at, you know, he's saying at that moment, like he was just trying to protect his family and, mm-hmm. and provide for his family and make sure that his family was safe. And, you know, the things stuff that I deal with doesn't even compare to what he had to go through. Like I said, the family could not even go to the game because of safety reasons. And so, you 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 know, when I have a bad day at work, <laughs> my bad day was a little bit different than uh, Hank Aaron's bad day. And, you know, the relationships and the people that, you know, I, I'm a relationship guy. But just, a, you know, living in Atlanta, just like everybody adores Hank Aaron. You know, and, uh, you know, I, working for the Braves, you, you remember the, the, the old Fulton County State, and they still had the 755. Uh, you know, the the wall in the parking lot. And so it always reminded you of what he did and what he had to fight through. And to me, what I always took away was just never give up, keep fighting, and just never take no for answer. He could have easily given up from the death threats, from, from everything, but he kept he kept fighting and he kept pursuing and he kept showing up to the park every day and and giving his all and he broke that record and I can't even imagine you know what was going through his head you know when he hit that home run and then to see the guy run on the field you don't know if that guy's trying to kill you or or, or shake your hand you know to the to the south to the city of Atlanta he he was everything you know being from him being from Alabama and just he I remember he was telling me a story just how you know, moving up the minor leagues and and, and and coming, you know, we thought Major League Baseball was bad. He said what he had to deal with coming up in baseball in his early years was, was 10 times worse. So, you know, I never had to experience that. You know, I, I lived in the South, and it wasn't the, the South that he lived in. And a lot of – he was – like I said, he walked hand – you know, hand-in-hand hand with Martin Luther King, Joseph E. Lowry, uh, all those black leaders – uh, uh, and I'm, I'm on the spot, so I'm forgetting some of them, but he walked hand in hand with them to change, to make changes, not just in sports, but just so that a person like myself could sit at a, 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 a counter or stay in the same hotel. You remember, one of the biggest things when he moved was what neighborhood would you live in? He wasn't able to live in the same neighborhoods as his white uh, teammates. So, a lot of those things. You know, he broke that kid. He, he was on the forefront of changing how we look at sports. Uh, and there was others. But like I said, he did it when blacks couldn't sit at the same countertop and in the South.
1: What do you take away from the way he has always carried himself? He carried himself throughout his career, but also after his career, when he you know becomes a part of the Braves organization, and throughout until his unfortunate passing earlier this year. Because you guys are are very different as far as you're you're very gregarious, and he was more of a quiet guy. Um, but the way he carries himself, what do you take away from that and the interactions you had with him that that you can use yourself as well? Yeah, I mean, to
0: give back, you know, people people understand I got that position because of the minority uh, internship that he provided. But it wasn't something that he, you know, put on social you know, social media or broadcast because he did things for people at the goodness of his heart. Not because he wanted attention. And that's one thing that I think sometimes you have to do it for the right reasons. Not to get the accolades and the credit you know there's so many things he did for the black community in Atlanta that people just don't know I thank him for where I'm at today you know I think me getting a taste of working in professional uh, sports actually working for an actual team dealing with players dealing with You know, working for a friend, like I worked for NASCAR, which was, I worked in the corporate office, which is different than when you actually work for an actual team, it's different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And that's the thing. He didn't do it for the credit. He did it because he cared about people and he cared about helping others get opportunity and open doors for other people. And like I said, he opened doors for me that I will be forever grateful for. You know that's what I try to do at USC. I try to help people. You know that we have. They tease me about this thing called the gaventry, but I try to help people get jobs. I have. I try to help any. If you know, what's the point to have a relationship if you don't use it? So for my interns, you know, when they when they graduate, I try to help them. If I can make a phone call to somebody, if I can write a recommendation, uh, even some of my coworkers, if I know somebody in another team, I'll make that call to help them because somebody helped me. And Hank Aaron was the one to help me, and that was the biggest thing. It was, don't just do things for yourself; do things to help others. And that's something that he always tried to do. And he didn't do it for the credit or for attention. He did it at the goodness of his heart.
1: Where does he stand in the pantheon of all-time sports greats for you? I mean, having a personal relationship, I feel like that.
0: Oh, he's it, the go. He's, okay. he's the go. He's the go. I mean, it's not even. It's. It's. There's no question. Like I said talking to Bill Bartholomew, who, you know, owned the Braves. And, and when he's sitting there telling me this story about, like, I, I, I guess people just don't understand. There were no sports in the South at that time. There was none, <laughs> you know, uh, just as, you know, when USC went down to Alabama and, and they changed the, you know, when they beat Bear Bryant and they, they integrated the SEC, he integrated professional sports. I don't think, you know, others, you know, of course, I'm a Jordan fan. Uh, you know, I think he's the greatest basketball player. You know, LeBron's getting close. You know, as much as Magic and Bird changed the TV and Jordan changed TV. Can you imagine him doing this and he had social media and TV? I mean, he, he would be the biggest superstar there ever was. Um, he broke up. He broke a record that just – it just wasn't a Major League Baseball record. It symbolized racism because Blacks, we weren't able to play the sport. We had to play in the Negro League. That record, Bob Gibson hit more home runs than Hank Aaron. Uh, not Bob Gibson. uh, Josh uh Gibson. Uh, uh, Josh Gibson. Uh, Bob Gibson, great pitcher. But he never got recognized. He never got a chance to play in professional. Sports because of the color of his skin. So you had a man that put his career on the line. That put he could have stayed in Milwaukee. He could have, he could live anywhere, and he chose to put it on his back and then chase a record that you know to put your family in danger, to put yourself in danger. I don't think any. There's no record LeBron breaking the scoring title. He's not going to have a bomb threat. You know, Drew Brees breaking the passing yard of touchdown. He's not having a, a bomb threat. He had bombs. Right? The FBI was in front of his house because of a record. And, you know, you, you can't. There's, there's, nothing you, there's, no, there's nothing you can put your life on a line for sports. That record, which he broke, 755, it means something. In, in, in the black community, it means something. Because that, in the past, before Barry Bonds, you know, and that was like, for, for the black community, that was like Obama, you know, becoming president. Like, mm. you know, he beat Beirut. Beirut was the uh, the great white hope. You know, like I said, I don't think you could put words. I don't think you can put a, a dollar value on, 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 what, on what he did. I don't think you can, there's no, I, I just hope kids, younger kids, younger generation understand what he did to change sports. And I don't just mean baseball. I mean all sports.
1: Well, hopefully uh, we'll have some of those kids listening to the podcast and, and we'll be able to to hear your words and be able to, to feel that and touch it a little bit as well. Gavin, thanks so much for taking the time and enlighten us with, with your personal experiences with Hank Aaron and, and also what kind of the record means to you and, and to the community as well.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Chaka. Right on. What's <laughs> the
1: close out the show, I've got another special guest, a late addition to the podcast lineup, but one I'm really excited about. I'd like to welcome in USC Annenberg Professor Sandy Tolan, who was one of my professors in grad school at USC. Sandy, thanks for jumping on with us last minute. Hey, Shotgun's good to talk to you again. It's been a long time. Yeah, definitely. Well, Sandy is, is actually a Milwaukee native, grew up a Hank Aaron fan, and has written a book titled Me and Hank, A Boy and His Hero 25 Years Later. Sandy, just tell tell us first off just about the book and the idea behind it.
2: Yeah, well, Shaka, first of all, good to be here. I was nine years old when the the Milwaukee Braves moved to Atlanta in 1965. And, you know, he was my hero, even when I was a little kid, seven, eight, nine years old, then the Braves left and a lot of our fellow Brewer, uh, our fellow Braves fans moved on to the Cubs or they, they were mad at the Braves for leaving, but I kind of just always was still into Hank. And I managed to get the Braves games on WSB in Atlanta and WSM in uh, Nashville. And I followed it and, you know, I would listen whenever I could tune in the games in the summertime. As a, as a kid, and then I started hearing that that he was you know he was approaching the great record the the mythical record of 715 uh, held by Babe Ruth of course 714 homers held by Babe Ruth, but then I heard that he was getting this hate mail and death threats because he was a black man um, approaching what was then considered the greatest record in sports. Interestingly, it no longer is by many people. <laughs> because he was a black man going for this white icon the mythical Babe Ruth in his record he started getting so many letters and um some of them were very violent and vicious lots of death threats he got 900,000 letters um True. but before you know computers and hand, you know uh, laptops and so on i mean if i i figured that out at an ounce per letter that was 29 tons of mail, and many of those tons were hate mail and saying, you know, you don't deserve it, calling them all kinds of names, and um, and threatening to kill them in some cases. And it was so, you know, I was 17 at the time that I learned this, 16 or 17, and I was so outraged. And and I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. And we're still in the late era of the civil rights movement. There were a lot of racist. um, I mean there are today, but um, it was in a way more pronounced in some ways back in the 60s and 70s. So I wrote Hank a letter. I, I said, dear Mr. Aaron, you know, you don't know me, but I've, you've been my hero, and we're in, rooting for you here in Milwaukee, and don't listen to these racists. We know you can do it. And, you know, I figured I maybe I'd get a letter back from the Braves or a postcard saying, thank you for your interest. But instead, <laughs> I get a letter From Henry Aaron, uh, dated June 20th, 1973, in which he says, you know, dear Sandy, I want you to know how much uh, your letter means to me. And he went on to say, you know, if you could excuse my sentimentality, your letter means much more than I can adequately express in words. And I'm, I'm sitting there as a 17-year-old, and you're kidding me. My hero just wrote me a letter in the middle of the chase, when at the time I didn't know, you know, his daughter was being protected by the FBI because of kidnapping threats. He had to sleep in other hotels away from his, his teammates. They had to bring him food into his room because they fe- feared poisoning or assassination, I mean, and here he is at, at the brink of the greatest record in the history of, of sports, at least the way we defined it back then. He was completely alone. He didn't, he didn't have his family, he didn't have, he didn't have his teammates, except for when he would, you know, came to the clubhouse and stepped into the batter's box. So it was a really lonely journey, as I found out later. And it was only at that point, you know, when he was approaching the record that he broke the record. And then the 25-year anniversary was coming and I thought, why don't I actually find out what he went through? You know, Some of the stuff I just told you, Shotgun, is what I learned when I was mm-hmm. researching the book. But I wrote him a letter and he said, yeah. And his secretary called and said, yeah, come down and see, you. Mr. Aaron can see you. I think it was in 1999. And I went and I did a, a piece for NPR, a long piece for NPR at the time. And then that turned into the book. So uh, the book was really about Uh, Not just about Hank Aaron, the great sports and baseball hero, but Hank Aaron, the civil rights hero,
4: Mm
2: -hmm. um, who didn't have any plans to be a civil rights hero, but he became a hero every time he risked his life by stepping into the batter's box.
1: You write the book, you get an opportunity to to meet Hank Aaron. What was that experience like 25 years later from your childhood hero, getting a chance to, to sit down and have a chat with him?
2: Uh, Well, I tell you what, man, I I guess I was 43 years old at the time. And I was like, I was nine again. I mean, (laughs) it was crazy. I no, I was a professional journalist. I'd been a journalist for, you know, 18 years or whatever, since, you know, by then, and I'd interviewed senators and, you know, world leaders and, you know, lots and travel all over and and here I was like a kid again. I when I had my microphone. I was sweating all over my microphone. <laughs> and I was da, 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 Mr. Aaron and he's just kind of smiling. I'm sure this happened to all the time. And I brought my scrapbook because I had started a scrapbook, you know, that the Chase, um, Henry Aaron and the Chase for 715. And so in, in the scrapbook had these old you know, yellowed clippings, and they were kind of flaking all over his desk. And he was kind of looking at me like, who is this guy? But, but I finally, you know, and I was all, you know, coat and tie and everything. And, and I finally, you know, sort of got my composure, became 43 again, and, um, and started interviewing about what he went through. And it was incredible. I mean, he told me I couldn't enjoy it. You know, I said, well, what was your reaction when you finally broke that record? He goes, I was just glad it was over. And think about that. I mean, he couldn't enjoy it. He couldn't celebrate. When he actually hit that homer on April 8th, 1974, the, the scoreboard in Atlanta, I think it was Fulton County Stadium back then, you know, was exploding scoreboard and fireworks and everything. His mother was at the game and she thought he was being shot. I mean... And so part of what my book is about is the chasm of awareness, uh, especially at that time, but even later between Black and white Americans about what what someone went through, what in this case Henry Aaron went through, and the racism he had to deal with that a lot of white people didn't even think about, whereas almost every Black person in America, at least everyone that I interviewed... Was extremely worried for Henry Aaron that he would be shot. And I, I went to some black barber shops in Atlanta and they were like, Oh my God, well, I thought he was gonna be shot going around the bases. So, you know, that 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 was really quite a journey for me. And I, you know, I interviewed his daughter, I interviewed Dusty Baker, Ralph Garr was another teammate, young guys that Hank took under the wing. And who told me? You know, they they just couldn't believe what they witnessed. Um, but then I interviewed people like Phil Necro, a great guy. Interviewed him. Uh, he died recently, mm-hmm. as you probably know. Um, he
1: had no idea.
2: I mean, later he learned, but during that time, he had no idea what Hank Aaron was going through.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, kind of the the difference. You went talk with Tom House earlier. You interviewed him for the book as well, and he right. was actually good friends with Dusty Baker and Gar, uh, coming up through the minors. So he said that he kind of had a little bit more awareness than some of his other teammates, um, and, and felt like that was because of that relationship that with those guys that he kind of w- was in. But Hank kind of yeah. kept everyone out a little bit as well, and kept everyone kind of protected from uh, hearing everything about it. And that was kind of just his character—is that he yeah. w- was such a you know strong figure himself, and you know absorbed everything and didn't let it come out in any any uh, negative light uh, on anyone else around him. It seemed like.
2: Yeah, at, at the same time, imagine what it would be like to carry
1: all that by yourself. All um, that I-
2: hate, all that that. know that fear that he had to have some fear i mean there was one letter that said i'm not sure if i'm going to shoot you with a long-range rifle from the bleachers or just a handgun from the box seats you know the fbi and the braves would you know have the fbi screen these letters and they didn't let hank see many of them but every now and then they show him one and say hey do you want to play tonight or do you want to just sit out and he would always play And uh, when I interviewed Dusty about this, uh, back when he was a manager of the Giants uh, in the San Francisco area, I went and talked to him. And he said there was one night where there was a particular threat. Some guy in a red coat was threatening to to shoot at Hank. And so Hank went to Dusty and Ralph because they always sat next to him. You know, these young, young black men, you know, sitting, absorbing all the wisdom from the elder, basically, you know. And um, they said, you know, he said, look, you guys, Ralph, Dusty, if you if you don't want to sit next to me tonight, there's supposed to be a guy taking a shot at me. Uh, You you don't have to. And and Dusty says, oh, no. Well, we said, no, no, Hank, we're down with you, man. If you go, we go. Um, And he said all night. He goes all night. Ralph and I were looking around for a guy with a red coat. If there would have been a firework gone out, we would have jumped out, jumped in. Hank wasn't even paying attention. (laughs) <laughs> so he had this ability that, that I think Tom House told me he had this ability to compartmentalize and just mm-hmm. that's what I guess great athletes do anyway. But imagine this in the extreme. He was compartmentalizing death threats when he stepped you know out of his consciousness when he stepped into the batter's box. And I think that year in 1973, I'd have to look it up. I think that was the year he had the most home runs. 1973 is the only year he hit more than 44 he hit 47 it was either 72 or 73 it was it was the time that he was undergoing the greatest pressure and the greatest uh level of hate and anger and somehow he was able to transform that into you know at age 38 39 into one of the greatest performances of his career
1: it was purely amazing, you know, the things that he went through and to still be able to to go through and do. It was such a stoic uh, demeanor, I think, um, yeah. and, and to become, you know, Becoming an icon in Atlanta, you know, when he w- was one of the guys that said, I, I, I've lived in the South and I don't want to do it again before, you know, leaving Milwaukee and Atlanta kind of convinced him. So as an Atlanta native, I, I'm very happy that, that they were able to convince him and that he was able to break the record as a brave in Atlanta, but a, a truly inspirational character. You know, he, he's you know, meant so much to so many in, in the Deep South and in Atlanta and as well to you as a Milwaukee native, too. So uh, thanks, Sandy, so much for jumping on. Your last impression, you know, what what do you think Hank Aaron just overall his body of work means to to so many people?
2: I think Hank Aaron is going to be remembered as an incredibly courageous figure who happened to play a sport but who set an example of perseverance and courage in the midst of an epidemic of hate. And he transcended that. He was deeply bruised and deeply scarred by his own words, but he achieved a greatness that I don't think anyone in baseball ever has, partly because of all that extra weight he carried around.
1: Well, Sandy, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate you jumping on on late notice, short notice here, and, and really appreciate all of our guests that jumped on today. Just so many different perspectives and unique perspectives have really enjoyed these conversations. I hope you guys did as, as well. Thank you for everyone that's listened. That's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Hurdle on the Sidelines podcast, part of the Peristyle Podcast family. I'm your host, Shotgun and saying thank you again to our special guest. Tom house, Gavin Morris, and Sandy Tolan for joining us. And thanks to the boss man, Ryan Abraham for jumping on to help out. Thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll hope you'll be back to join us for the next episode of the heard it on the sidelines podcast and go Braves. <laughs>